Have you ever dreamed of going to Hollywood and making it big? Well, these are the stories of people who have made it, just in a different way. They're the unsung heroes behind the screens that make movies and television come to life. Welcome to the Right Scuff Podcast, where we talk about films and interview those who are just starting their careers to some of the biggest names in production and post-production. Our mission is to inspire you through the true stories of people who have achieved their dreams. We'll be talking to Foley artists, screenwriters, sound editors, picture editors, the list goes on. And for film fans, we'll be focusing on sound and what it takes to create Foley. Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm a writer. And I'm John, a professional Foley artist in the film business for over 40 years. He's worked on over 500 films and is a 37-time nominated and 9-time MPSD winner for big titles such as Inception, The Matrix, and The Dark Knight. You can find us online at rightscuff.com and please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. Welcome to another podcast of The Right Scuff with Sarah and John and today we have a special guest, one of the two people that truly were the first independent Foley artists in the United States and I dare say the world. In other words, they were not tied to a studio per se so they could actually go out and do their craft at other stages, facilities, etc., and not have to follow what a studio would maybe like to have them do. They could actually go above and beyond, think outside the box, and that's what made Kitty Malone, who's our guest today, and then her, her partner, which you'll speak about at some point later, Ross Taylor, so incredibly important to the history of Foley. And Kitty's sitting here with us, and I'm going to say good morning, Kitty. Well, good morning, John. And uh, again, thank you for being with us, and... If you wouldn't mind, let's just jump on the time machine for a second and go back to a point where you feel comfortable saying, you know, I think this is kind of where it all started for me. And it doesn't have to be Foley. It could be whatever really the forks in the road that got you to that. Well, I'm from Fort Worth, Texas. And in Fort Worth, they have a great program where the city sponsors activities for children uh, who can't afford training and classes. I remember going to an arena and seeing a community circus. And I saw all of these children on the field doing tumbling. And that was very intriguing. I had three brothers, and um, we just all took to it. It just looked very exciting being out on that field and being a tumbler. Do you remember what year that was? I, am, I was about, um, age-wise, I'm going to say I was about eight. Wow. Nine years old. So eight years old. Wow, okay. So all of these people out in, in the field, it was a very exciting moment. We inquired, and we were able to take those lessons, the three of us. So I started out tumbling, which not being aware that someday all of that activity would help in coordination on the as, as not only being a professional dancer, which I became a professional dancer, but that also helped just with uh, coordination. Mm-hmm which as a Foley artist, you do have to have good coordination because it's the eye looking at the screen and your body coordination. It's, it's all a unit of one person being that kind of package to acquire that. So we were tumblers and at a certain time I started taking tap dance lessons. That led into other lessons in dancing and I became a professional dancer. Wow. Now, what would you say, what year was that, so to speak? Or how old were you, should I say? 
when that happened. When I became a professional dancer, Correct. I got my start at the Dallas State for musicals uh, after a couple years after graduation from high school. So from I was very fortunate to dance behind one of Judy Garland's sisters at the Dallas uh, the Starlight in Dallas. And won a scholarship of and, $200. So, I'm sorry. So you won a scholarship? Uh, well, I won the money. The thing is, um, I called it a scholarship because I was cheating a little bit there with the terminology because I told my parents I had to take it out in New York with the Ballet Theater. That was my excuse to get out of Fort Worth. <laughs> To go to quote the big time. I see. So we're not necessarily advocating for those listeners out there that you lie to your parents. <laughs> However, uh, you understood. It you was fudging. It, you're f- exactly. Word. It was. It was. It was a, a good fudging. Leaning in my direction. Right. You know. Right. Okay. But they bought into it, so it was all pretty good. So anyway, I went to New York and studied the ballet theater. Did Broadway, off Broadway, then came to Hollywood. So I did many movies, uh, television, and movies. I'm going to stop you there and ask you a quick question then, too. When you were in New York um, on the legitimate stage, were there any um, choreographers that you work with that you really admired or even you have stories about that you, you enjoy telling or just, you know, anything like that? Well, in New York, Donya Krupska, who I had worked for at the Dallas State Fair Musicals, was very instrumental in encouraging me to go to New York to study more dancing to work on Broadway. In fact, that's who I worked for on Broadway. And uh, in later years, I worked with Bob Fosse. Bob Fosse. And, and also Matt Maddox, who was one of my mentors and I really looked up to. I dan- I studied with him. I worked with him, um, for him. And I assisted. I was assistant choreographer for him for Dinah Shore special out here. Well, here in Hollywood, okay. Yes. Wow. Tell us how you went from being a dancer to all of a sudden being a Foley artist. Well, okay. Uh, In the year that people branched out to be independent producers and have their own studios, it was just like a movement. Mm -hmm. People that had been in studios says, I'm going to put in my own studio. So they would branch out and move out of the the location of the studios and put their own studio in. They then hired people, editors, to do their work for them when they got the movies in. In those days, the editors did their own foley. But when they were independent, they were on a time schedule. And the editors were so busy doing Monday through Friday, cutting their own work, they were supposed to do the foley, and they had to do it on the weekend, and that was not working because that was a seven-day work job for them okay Jim Nelson got my start or gave me my start Um, he said you know I know a dancer who has good coordination I think I'll bring her in and see if there's any potential in her doing this so he called me and I would have a television series Monday through Friday but I would go in on Saturday and Sunday and do foley right so you were dancing Monday through Friday and then Saturday and Sunday you were foleying yes wow and nobody knew how to pay you. In those days, it was something hurt, unheard of. And I'd go in and say, well, um, wh- what do I do? And he said, well, bill me. And I'd say, well, for how much? And they'd say, how much do you want? <laughs> we were embarrassed, and you didn't know. And they would just throw you $100, and that was 
big stuff. And it took quite some time before they got to a point of paying us. We, we reached a salary. We weren't really on a salary. When I had time between, say, four hours or three hours off, I'd call the studio and they said, get over here, we'll use you on those three hours. So they just throw me some cash as I was walking out the door, and it was like a thank you. Wow. I kind of found money in a way. Well, it was until later years, you know. Mm-hmm. You had to set up salary and payroll and, and so forth. And, and so now, were you working by yourself then for Jim Nelson? In other words, I, was, you, uh, I was working just with whoever could come in on the weekends. Right. But they weren't necessarily a Foley artist? I'm no, just they were just trying out, or it was some person's wife on the weekend that wanted something to do with somebody's girlfriend or somebody that wanted to try and do it or some guy that wanted to pick up a Saturday and another guy on Sunday and it was just a mixed group of everything everybody did. so really in a sense you were the constant and you were kind of auditioning in a sense other people or at least having to work with people that might or might not have any any knowledge of that so that must have been a little difficult well I didn't exactly know what I was doing myself because the terminology was something different, you know. I, um, on, on props, you had to learn how to do props. You had to learn uh, s- sound substitution. It was just a learning process that it was very easy for me because I had good coordination. Mm-hmm. And you'd be surprised a lot of people just don't have that coordination <laughs> just because they've never been athletic or they've never had to concentrate on what is on the screen. That was a new pro- thought process. Right. It's another dimension in a sense. You know, you're, you're, you, as, you, as you, would, you would say, you'd be doing a, a footstep where you're watching the screen or you're doing a proper watching the screen. You're not actually looking at what you're doing. Right. I was going to say exactly the same thing. When you work with props, you don't look down at the prop. You have to keep your eye on the screen. And that's a different kind of coordination that people are just not used to. Right. That's, fa- that's fabulous. Now, so you were working with, with, with Jim for a while. And, and tell us how you met Ross, unless you have something else to say in between that. Well, I was just going to say how I branched out to the other studios. Ah. But Paramount's, uh, they were having the kind of the same problem over there because the editors had to do their own reels and they didn't like doing their own reels mainly if you don't like something you can't do it if you can't do it you don't like it (laughs) just bouncing off of one another so uh, Paramount called and said I hear you have a girl over there that can uh, do Foley he said yeah they said can I use her he said well of course give her a call so then I Paramount was that was a studio thing on the lot with Jim Nelson, he was independent. And that's how words started getting around. They found out that they could take somebody who knew what they were doing and pay them at, you know, as a separate kind of uh, talent. They could actually save money rather than having people come in and not knowing what they're doing and taking a long time to do it mm. and not liking what they're doing. They didn't come up with very good and in, in inventing the sound that they needed. So that's how all of this started growing. Well, Jim um, needed somebody for a, a movie, and he had, we was, you know, behind time. So he hired uh, Ross Taylor, who had his own independent company. Was that called Edit Right International? Yes, it was. It okay. was he, uh, Ross Taylor and Fred Brown. So 
he uh, just needed he needed somebody good, and Ross was one of the best. When the men used to pay him or buy him lunch on, when he was at the studios, because he was good and he could do it fast. I said, "Hey, Ross, I'll buy you lunch if you'll do my reel or you know mm-hmm. whatever." Mm-hmm. And uh, so he said, "Kitty, oh, this Ross Taylor's coming in." Well, he did a little trick, a little game. He said, but he doesn't know how to do it very well, so try to help him. <laughs> well, he goes to Ross and says the same thing. So we're going in. I think he doesn't know. He doesn't think I know. And we go in, and uh, I met him in an afternoon. We started late in the afternoon. Very first take, uh, Ross was, like, running. And he turns to me, and he said, is that okay? I didn't have a clue if it was okay or not. I didn't know if it was in sync because I wasn't used to even calling anybody sync running. And I had must have had a strange look on my face. And he said, I know it wasn't very good. I'll do it again. <laughs> so he did it again. And he said, no, that was better. I'm glad he said that because I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> so then I did a take. And... Um, he, I said, well, was that okay? And there was a little dead silence there. And he said, no, no, that was okay. Well, this game kind of went on, you know, for the rest of the afternoon. The next day we worked together. And um, we went to lunch. And he looked at me. He said, what do you do to make a living? <laughs> I looked at him. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you don't do Foley, do you? Nobody does Foley to make a living. I mean, you, you've got to pay the rent and... You know, it's, so what do you do for that? And I said, well, I do Foley. He said, I've never heard of anybody doing Foley. And then you're paid for it, and that's what you're calling your occupation. And um, I said, yeah, that's what it is. And he said, well, I'll tell you why I'm interested. He said, uh, I have Man of La Mancha coming up, and I'd like to hire you. I said, oh, okay, you got it. So that's how I started, and then we just from then on for the next many years we were partners. Wow! So that's how it came together, and of course you were set up, if you will, by Jim. Yeah, <laughs> but Jim Nelson, a, he did it all. Yeah. Good old Jim, I love him. That's that's fantastic, and then of course you have worked on some of the biggest pictures, uh, Easy Rider being one. Oh yes, uh huh. You know, and of course, if I say any any of these films and anything tickles your fancy, like oh, we did a fun thing, that just chime in. Um, uh, a little big man. A little big man. Yes. Is there something about that that's unusual? Fully wise. Yes. It's very funny and unusual, I think. Now, see, we're still in the pioneer days on this, so I had to work with all the men who also didn't know what they were doing. Well, I worked with a man who was very short and uh, didn't have a lot of weight. Now, you have to understand, because this became a big issue as as years went by, they thought if there was a heavy man walking, then a heavy person should be walking for them. So they didn't think this man was heavy enough, that the sound wasn't heavy enough. So they had me jump on his back. And he would walk with me on his back, thinking it would give him weight in his his feet, but that didn't work. So they put weights on his feet, his his wrists, and still had me jump on him. <laughs> <laughs> and after the first week, he had a back problem. <laughs> and for the audience to know, K- Kitty is very petite, so 
It's not like you know some very large person jumped on this gentleman's back, but but through the years, then then when it got to the point that they would accept, which became also another transition of two women doing foley, it was a big thing. The men would say, "Well, we have two women, so you can't do it in a man." And they said, "Well, yes, we can." And they said, "Well." How do you do that? It just depends on what kind of shoe you have and what's on the heel of the shoe. Allison ran into a lot of that problem. Mm -hmm. And they said, listen, if Kitty can do Mr. T, they said, oh, if she can do that, then that's fine. <laughs> so and if you can do Mr. T, you can do anybody. Uh, right. <laughs> right. That's correct. Um, so let's see. Well, also you worked on the last picture show. Oh, I'm sorry. We're going to go back to a Little Big Man because uh, – Tell me about the Foley stage, so to speak, for Little Big Man. It was on a sound stage. On a sound stage, yes. not a Foley stage. Not per a se. Foley stage. And what is what would be the difference, Kitty? Well, the Foley stage is a stage built with different pits, a water pit, uh, different floors, different surfaces to walk on. Usually, nowadays they're equipped where you can have your props that stay on the stage. You don't have to, in the early days, we had to, whatever we could carry in a suitcase for gadgets and shoes, we had to unload and take them to the next studio. There was no place to leave them. We were like traveling gypsies, I guess. <laughs> um, so you know, you weren't, on, weren't then on a Foley stage, but you were actually on the shooting stage. Well, yes. No. Well, because they didn't have a stage, and we had to work at night. And uh, they just had to put whatever they could to bring the sound in rather than it spread out and, and not be, um, um, well, they used curtains, actually. Really? So you used curtains? They didn't to have baffers. Yeah, didn't have any baffles. You so used curtains to try to uh, uh, negate the, the, to keep the largeness of the, of the actual area you're working no in. No echoes or anything. Right. You know. so, so what was on this shooting soundstage? Well... There was a mud pit. They had to make a pit and put, you know, to do the mud, and, and they had uh, boardwalks. They had to build those and put them on the stage, which was time-consuming. Mm -hmm. Like on a Foley stage, all the surfaces stay there. Right. Huh. But there were quite a few. It was many years later that they really built a good Foley stage. Right. Well, that's been my complaint pretty much. Uh, most Foley stages have not been built by professionals per se, that is professional Foley artists. Not to say they aren't great technical people, but they don't necessarily know what you and I would need. But So that's that's kind of an unusual thing that you actually were, you know, doing that picture. So I assume there was like teepees and and uh, dirt areas and just large areas to walk around in? Well, there was plenty of areas to walk around in, but the stage was so large you didn't spread out that far. You kept it as compact so that... Uh, there was a limitation to that, to how f much you could spread it out and still have acceptable sound. Okay. Um, when you worked on The Godfather, did you meet Francis Ford Coppola or have anything to do no, with it? No, I didn't. I worked on one and two. Okay. Uh, it was a very exciting film. And that was you and Ross, I assume. No, it wasn't. It was Interesting. Just, just me. Okay. One and two. Now, who, who, who did Vito Corleone's footsteps? Do you remember? Well, I did a lot of them. Okay. That, that's glad you said that because that's my point. You know, it doesn't matter the artist per se. It's whoever can perform that performance correctly. 
Yes, and how and how the shoes fit in, or and how the rhythm of your body. You know, uh, a Foley artist takes on the role of of getting into the soul of that person and being that actor, and that's where the acting part comes in a lot. You know, if somebody's tiptoeing. You you don't just stand there and put all your weight. You must tiptoe and feel what they're doing as part of the beauty of Foley. Right, so... So you can feel like that actor. Yeah, and well, you, you are then a Foley yeah. actor. Yeah. Right. And now, I of course, that was not the credit that was given back then, if, in fact, the credit was even given. Oh, no, we never got credit. Uh, and that was one of the sad things. Uh, nobody thought we were important. I can remember Jim Nelson being in a meeting, and they only had room for two people left to have credit. And um, it was between... The two Foley people, Ross and I, or the caterer. Oh, boy. And the producer said, well, I know what the caterer does, and he would be very important to me, and I've never heard of a Foley person, so they got the credit, and we didn't. Well, hopefully IMDb has rectified that wrong. In fact, uh, speaking of IMDb, I see, uh, of course, in 73, you did The Exorcist. And yes, I did. I think you were you and Ross then together then. Oh, absolutely. It was his company that did it. Uh, Edit Right International. So, yes. This could sound like a silly question, but bear with me. Was it was what what was you saw on the screen such that like oh your stomach turned and you just didn't want to do it or it didn't matter you were professional and I mean how did that feel? Well, you're there to be a part of what that actor or actress is doing. Um, you just do it because you're already in a creative mood by the time you get to the stage, so you're ready for whatever happens. Right. Now, uh, Ross did the throwing up scene that she did. Did he really? And uh, he did it by taking a warm carbonated drink and drinking enough of it that he could make a loud belch. <laughs> and that was uh, a very interesting moment. <laughs> and it came across as being what it should sound like and uh, that's how he accomplished that wow wow <laughs> um, I, I, I do know in 77 this film came along that's actually had a chance to really go on and do well and it was called Star Wars oh yeah now can you tell us anything fun about that or the first day we went in we were all day on the first reel what's unusual, but you know when you have to create a lot, it doesn't matter about time because they're interested in establishing sounds and matching what's on the scene. All the warriors, they were wearing soft tennis shoes. <laughs> there was absolutely no sound at all. So you heard, you, you heard no stormtroopers in the original production whatsoever? Absolutely not. They were not like stormtroopers with good metal shoes on. Right. They, used little soft tennis shoes. So we rented golf shoes that had the golf, uh, what do you call it? Had the spikes in? Yes. Okay. We took a heavy metal sheet, laid it down, and then put another one on an angle. And that's how we established that sound. Wow. Now, to start it out that first day, we gave them three choices. And we had to write down what we did on the first take, the second take, and the third take. Right. So George Lucas chose the sound that he thought fit it. And then 
they sent that back to us, and that's how we went by what our notes and establishing the sound, and that became the continuity throughout the movie. Right, and that's that's an abject lesson for all you uh, listeners out there that are aspiring Foley artists, that you know to make sure that the sound that is desired by the director at all, you know, if you need to do some tests early on, that's a good thing to do. Nothing wrong with that. Well, yeah, but see, he wasn't here also. And he just needs to go by the sound and what he believes. Right. And what he wants, and he knows what he wants to create. And, uh, yes, that that's a wonderful way, actually, to do it. Right. And do you recall offhand, did that, when you were working on the film, did you think, boy, this is really something? Or are you just like, it was like another film? Do you no, know we saying? really thought it was something. First of all, we didn't understand it because we weren't going in continuity after oh. the first day, and all of a sudden this animal would be walking along or C-3PO would be doing something, and you'd say, who is this? <laughs> we, we liked it, but we couldn't put it together. Right. I, it right. was just magnificent. Yeah. And I must say it was fun to do. It took a long time. I'll bet, but I'll bet it was a fun job to do. Yeah, My it was goodness, wonderful. it's uh, it's truly a touchstone, you know, in yes. in film history. Um, and uh, now, uh, could I just say oh, something? You else? could in say those anything. Days, because we didn't get credit through the years because of technology changing. People are now knowing how important the people behind the scenes are. When they had the 30th anniversary of getting together with Star Wars, um, people brought posters, and they have everybody's name on it except the people behind the scenes. So they were busy looking for the people that did the Foley, that mixed it, the mixer. We were there, and we were the only people that were sitting there for an hour afterwards giving autographs on their posters. No to kidding. finish the cast <laughs> because by this time they realize how important all of this is to a film well of course george the, says that oh, the mixing the foley work all of those yeah. things and uh that that's wonderful that's, that's that's what a great thing that have happened in your career and in fact yes george lucas says 50 percent of every one of his films is sound and i'd like to say that as of uh, a week ago we're still getting uh, people from germany the other day, Switzerland, to sign, then they send you cards, Star Wars cards, and you, they want you to sign them, and they self-addressed envelope, and we send back the cards with our name on them. Wow. I'll bet. I'll bet. Yeah. Well, okay. Um, gosh, you know, and again, I'm looking at the IMDb now. I'm just going to read out a couple titles, then we're going to talk about another couple films. Electric Horseman, Urban Cowboy, Popeye, Officer and a Gentleman, uh, Max Dugan Returns, and um, let's see, goodness. Uh, let's go back to this one I didn't mention, but I'm going to mention it now, which is Apocalypse Now. Oh, yeah. Do, let's say, let's start with this. Did you, When you worked on Apocalypse Now, did you just start in order? No, let's start with real one and go on? Or? Oh, yes, we did. The people flew in from, uh, I don't know where they were from, San Francisco? Uh, yes, Lee? yes, so it would be yes. uh, Coppola's uh, they had production They build company. the ship. Uh, the boat, uh, the boat that was traveling. Mm -hmm. They first did it out of the wrong wood, and they couldn't understand why the sound was not matching. Okay. They flew Ross too. I believe it was San Francisco one afternoon, and the minute he walked on it, he said, "You built it out of the wrong material." 
All right, so backing up, so I, I understand. When you were starting the picture, uh, there's a boat, as if you will, uh, in the picture that's a, was a character almost uh, that goes up the river. Um, so they actually built for you a little something that should sound like the boat? Yes, yes. But they did it out of the wrong material. Yes. Uh, and we only know that because Ross went up there and... F- yes. <laughs> okay. Said, okay, I see what the problem is. Uh, you, you used the wrong material. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So then, then obviously they got the right material. And um, did you f- did you ever have to do anything in that film that was like this is unusual? I've not done this on other films, or was it pretty much the same? Well, there were a lot of dog tags. You, you know, you have to because they make noise when people run. I can remember just standing in front of the um, the mic for a complete reel to do nothing but the jingle of those tags. Wow. And you, and you said something interesting, too. I'm just going to interrupt, but bear with me. You know, Kitty just said, <clears throat> excuse me, she did the dog tags through the whole reel. Back then when Kitty was working with Ross, the technology was not what it is today. In other words, you were not going to a computer. You were going to analog, and specifically it was, um, it was called single stripe or full coat. Think um, 35-millimeter film for your camera, but instead of being in the camera, it would be on a recorder, so the sound would be recorded to that. And so I guess what I'm saying is, from a time standpoint, if Kitty was doing the dog tags, it would just be that one channel, and she'd have to do it all the way from the beginning to the end of the reel, which took time. Well, yes, when I first started out, there's no jumping in and jumping out, you know, just to repair or if you made a mistake. If there was a mistake, you would go from the beginning all the way to the end. So when people first started out, I can remember, and you have to understand too, we didn't quite know what was sync and not sync or could be fixed and could not be fixed. So you would hear an editor say, hmm, well now I can use a little bit on that front and uh, maybe some at the last, well okay, now okay, give me another take. So you'd have to do it from the beginning all the way through and his eye, he knew which sections he could use and couldn't use. Maybe you do that four times from the beginning all the way through to the end. Wow. Nowadays, they can do certain part and jump in and out. You can repair things. You can split things up. We just did it on a three-track in those days. Right. So in other words, what you're saying, of course, is that there was no what was called rock and roll. In other words, you could not go back and jump back in. You had to. It was just all straight ahead. Of course, today, with technology, it's not an issue, but... Well, that must have been, uh, you really had to pay attention. Well, not only that, it took more time, too. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, let's see. I'm just looking here. Um, sure. Here, uh, Sarah. I guess, I guess, Kitty, of course, you know, your um, experiences are, a little time ago, but I think it's germane to today. Instead of being in a studio system, being independent, was there anything that you you needed, you felt you needed to do to help be an independent Foley artist? Or is there anything you say to somebody today to if they want to try to be a Foley artist? Just anything that comes to your mind? Well, Foley artists are in a union nowadays. Uh, I didn't have to be in that union. I was already not retired from being a Foley artist. I don't know what the setup is. There, the conflict in those days to be independent, 
there was you were not governed by any kind of a union. To go to the studios, they wouldn't let anybody on the lot unless you were represented by some union. That was a conflict for a while. I, as a dancer, belonged to five unions, and there was always some union we could find to maybe allow me to be on the to be on the the lot. Mm-hmm. They were very strict about it in, when I first started out. I see. Um, and you mentioned before um, hand-eye coordination, so in a way that would really be vitally important. And you, being a dancer, you know that you you hone that skill. So maybe you know for those out there that are wanting to do this, that you should really pay attention to that. You know, and if they're not a dancer, maybe try tennis or something, which you're really having to focus on hand-eye coordination. Uh, Watch people walking down a, the street, get behind them and try to foley them. That's great. That's a fun thing to do, and I can I find myself a lot of times today, and I'm walking to the store. Somebody's in front of me, and I just do Foley all the way. And <laughs> see how it's working out for me that moment. And uh, But that's a one, or watch television and see how. But if you don't know if you're in sync or not, that's a problem that you don't know. But if you have any talent or feel for it at all, right. you will catch yourself getting into the rhythm of their body. And everybody has a different walk. Right. When people are walking and then they start running or they stumble over something or they go downstairs, they go upstairs, their weight's different. There's a lot to learn just about walking. And I remember when people did first start doing Foley, well, they say, well, you can do that because you were a dancer. Part of that's true and part of it's just not true. It's just an awareness. It's awareness of how you can work with your body. So, Kitty, um, if you were now to jump in the time machine again, but you're going to go back and visit yourself as a younger person. Is there any advice you'd give yourself that you wish you had said to yourself? Or I don't know how I want to say this. I, I wanted to be more, you know, I'm very shy, and I wanted to, like, I, can't, I wasn't one of those people at the in industry to push myself. The talent was there, the potential, like, quote, a star for lack of a better word, or more successful. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really wanted to be a Merle Streep, and I was so shy I took acting, and uh, I was great, but I I couldn't handle going to interviews and things like that. Mm -hmm. I, I my self-worth. You have to have great confidence in yourself. I didn't have that. If I, to talk to my younger self because I wasn't encouraged by my parents, I had to do it myself. I had to do anything to get away from Texas because my teachers back there said, if you don't get away from Texas, then you're just going to blend in and do nothing, and you're going to be sorry. So I had to push myself and get out of Texas, go to where the people were, the work was that I could do. But I was always so grateful to be working. I was always shy and didn't want to cause you know problems or push myself uh, because I can remember going, though, like... Um, Dancers are competitive, and they don't want a, uh, another good dancer doesn't want another good dancer to know about the audition because if you go, you might get it, and they wouldn't. Huh. And it was the last year of the commercials, good grammar, a good taste, a cigarette commercial, and I didn't get a call for it. And I called one of my very dear friends and asked him about it. He said, oh, it's invitational only. You can't do that. I didn't know the choreographer. I said, well, I'm going to crash it. He said, oh, you can't crash that. He said, uh, 
you got to show your name when you come in the door. You, if you won't be on the list, it'd be kind of embarrassing. I said, yeah. I said, um, okay, but I'm going to go anyway. I don't know. I got the nerve to go. I went. The doors opened. Everybody knew the choreographer walked through the doors. He didn't care. He didn't. There's too many of them there. Just everybody said, okay, I know all you can dance. I know all of you. Form a line. Called five people forward. I said, okay, you got the job. Go over there. You're going to be um, nurses. So I'm, that's, give me ten more people to stand here. I stood up there. He had never seen me before in his life. And the we were on a sound stage, and the door opened. And I looked over there, and this man made a long walk and said, I know, I know that man. I just finished a special for him. He came up to the choreographer and standing there. He said, uh, how you doing? He said, going, everything's going just fine. So he looked, and he said, where are you? And he said, the secretaries. He said, you know, Kitty would make a good secretary. He said, yes, she would. Be fabulous. He said, Kitty, step forward. And I'm just standing there. And he said, okay. And he called a couple other names. said, okay, you all have this job. You're doing this commercial. You will be secretaries. And it hadn't been for him just walking through the door. And I just finished a job with him that I, that I got that. And I'm going to point out, too, had you not decided to just crash it. I know, I know. I've, I've thought about that so much. I Interesting. just didn't, uh, it was, it's very hard to like promote yourself. That's what your agent's for, and it's hard to get an agent. That's what an agent is for, is to do that, that kind of work for you. I'm going to change gears real quick. Uh, if you have one, a favorite story of something that happened to you and Ross, and it could be on the Foley stage, it could be out somewhere, just something that makes you laugh when you think of Ross Taylor. Well, I had a lot of fun with Ross. He was he was a fun person because he was funny. He he was in radio and he was a radio announcer. Um, he was always talking to objects. I remember the first time I met him, he talked to the coffee cup because he was so nervous being around me, and um, he accidentally hit the coffee cup, and he said, "Oh, excuse me." I looked to see what he was doing. He was talking to the coffee cup. I really thought something was wrong with him. <laughs> I really did. And he dropped his cigarette. He was so nervous around me. This is one of the most charming. At that time, it wasn't very funny or charming. But he was a fun person, so I had a lot of fun times with him. We just we had wonderful times on the Foley stage because we both loved the work. We were both good at it. And it's hard because sometimes when somebody says, no, I don't think that take was very good. You want to do that again? You get, you know, that little thin line of uh, when a person's going to be defensive. But we got along beautifully. Had a lot of laughs on the stage. And we were creative. And sometimes at night he'd look at me and say, you were very good today. I thought, well, thank you. I felt pretty good. Yeah, you were very good. Or I would say the same thing mm -hmm. to him. It just worked. I can't think of anything on the set right off. Uh, I'm sure there were many things that were uh, fun. I know he was doing an, uh, a Popeye. He was dancing for him on the water, and there were a lot of funny little things that happened, him trying to dance in that water. There's 
a film on it someplace. I can't really find it. That when there's so many fun things, it just becomes, quote, a fun time. I can't just pinpoint something individual right off. Well, I love that's a great story, though, that's about the coffee cup. Well, well, that's what people do with the radio. You know, they talk to themselves a lot (laughs) because that's a part of what they do. And, and you know, Kitty, you said something that strikes me that I think is really important. Um, You and Ross, it was kismet in a sense that you just fit together. Yeah. And and you didn't have to, why'd you do that? Or that's how I say, you worked together. You loved the work. You loved your your work, and you loved his work, so therefore you loved each other's work. And so you were helping hold each other up to do the best possible job you can, and that's something that's so important in our business. Well, John, you know when you have a partner, it's like another kind of marriage. (laughs) Uh, That's what a partnership is in in the long term. You get to where you know each other, and you give in to weaknesses and strengths and uh, Sometimes people are better at footsteps than they are at props and vice versa. And you kind of relax and let them know what they enjoy. And if you, if you do something good, you like it. It all works together. Right. It balances, one bounces off of the other. But a partnership, is, like I say, that's a kind of marriage. Well, I must say to you and then the audience, the partnership that you have with Ross Taylor was amazing. And of course, you individually were amazing. It uh, was great hearing your story. Thank you. Um, and, and in fact, um, once it's posted, that is, people can listen to it, sometimes they have questions, uh-huh. and they might send them to our website. Okay. So if you would be open to it, we might contact you and say, hey, somebody had asked about this, if you wouldn't mind, and then we can, down the line, um, share that. And of course, if at any time later you feel like, oh, gosh, there's this one thing I really love, et cetera, Feel free to to tell us, or maybe even we will talk to you again at some point. Because I, I have a feeling, uh, you know much more. Not that you're not willing to share it, but uh, you know, it just uh, you were so important to the art of foley. Oh, thank you. That uh, it cannot be uh, underestimated. Well, you know, it opened up a field for women and a career and an occupation, and. Uh, I think that's what I contributed, and I think that's very important, especially because the editors were men, and they had to do it, and they didn't like to do it. And now that it's a profession, people like what they're doing. Right. And I'd be glad to answer any questions. I love teaching, and you know, I think I could have a, a lot of things. Maybe I, right off the spur of the moment, now I've forgotten, or uh, it will stir up memories. Okay. Or things like I could help other people, which I'd be glad to do. Well, fair enough. Again, we thank you for your time. Kitty Malone, unbelievable that I can sit here with you and, and talk about it. And I'll pass the mic back over to Sarah. Once again, I want to thank you all for listening. I really appreciate any advice, any feedback, and I really hope you guys are loving it. We'll see you next week on The Right Scuff. <laughs>